Hi, my name is David Lopez, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Newark, New Jersey, and this is The Power of Attorney. Today, it's a real honor to have with me Professor of Law, Christina Ho. Professor Ho is also the Associate Dean for Faculty Research Development and New Programs. Wonderful to have her here. Um, she's also a nationally known expert in health law. And today we're gonna to talk about her work and her journey, but we're also gonna talk about the current COVID-19 crisis and the implications for health law. Professor Ho, welcome. Thank you. It's um, a pleasure to be on. Professor Ho, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself to get started? Sure. So I came to the Academy sort of relatively late. I uh, graduated from law school and public policy school and uh, went straight to the Hill. So I worked on the Capitol Hill. <laughs> Capitol Hill. And I worked on the House side for a Massachusetts congressman. And my very first bill that I helped him write was state-based universal health care, single-payer bill. And then I uh, worked in the White House on the Domestic Policy Council for the Clinton administration um, in the late 90s. After that, I was the healthcare LA for Senator Hillary Clinton when she represented the state of New York. And then after that, I worked in China on the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS project, uh, serving as the country director the program there and I did that for um, four and a half years and we helped the Ministry of Health in China stand up the first free antiretroviral treatment program for HIV AIDS ever uh, in that country. And then I came back, I um, started a project at um, the O'Neill Institute at Georgetown Law and then I came to Rutgers. So, you know, sort of been around the world and back. So, so what, what year did you start at Rutgers? It was 10 years ago now um, in uh, 2010. I love it. It's been, you know, it was interesting. Um, at the time when I came back to the academy, I think one thing I really missed, and I'm sure that you feel this way too, David, is there's a particular kind of energy to sort of young people learning. And it's sort of one of the most sort of hopeful things ever that you encounter in life. And then you you don't even realize it until it's not there. And so to be kind of exposed to that energy, I think is, is really sort of important. And it's a, it's, a, it's a collective good that keeps us all going here at Rutgers. And when did you know that you wanted to do health law? Is that something that you knew in law school or is that something you stumbled into uh, by working on Capitol Hill? So, right, it's a very interesting question. So I think that when we think about the role of law in society, the key question is whether law can make the kinds of decisions that actually improve human well-being. And that has been a question that I've been sort of focused on all throughout my education and throughout my career. How do we and how should we collectively make decisions that determine basically our, our community members' odds of suffering and flourishing? And what is the nature of law as a tool? Are we accomplishing that? So I did a lot of labor, health, education, welfare law when I was in law school. And then I went to work on the Hill and I did sort of housing law. I did nutrition. I did health law. And so, you know, I sort of did a gamut of things. And it, it's interesting. I, I think that a lot of one's 
career can sometimes be guided by what the pressing social issue comes to be at the time. And I just think that when I look at my cohort, a lot of people went into um, the health sector in some way. And I think that the health sector is just this enormous segment of our world and our economy here in the U.S. that's unresolved. And it almost has this gravitational pull where sort of people get sucked in to try to solve the problems that are constantly being thrown off by the health sector because it's not something that we've designed to sort of function very well. And, and of course, today, healthcare is the central issue in the age of, uh, of COVID-19. And we're going to talk a lot about that today, but it's also been really one of the most critical issues in the public space for a long time. And you've been really right there front and center, uh, working in the Clinton administration, working with uh, Senator Clinton on these issues. Tell us a little bit about that experience, working in the White House and working with, um, with Senator Clinton. So, you know, I think about it now, and um, it was such an honor and a privilege, which of course I knew at the time, but I think one's appreciation of that even deep deepens as you get older, sort of at the time, of course, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear that there was so much at stake and um, you wanted to do better than your best um, in order to sort of safeguard the kinds of outcomes that were somehow part, you know, in, in, in any small part within your responsibility. But the other thing that sort of helped you to feel confident in that is that you were just working with the best of the best. And so that feeling of being you know, part of a machine that clicks along, you know, with sort of incredible accuracy, commitment, speed, goodwill, that feeling is almost a muscle memory. And I feel like I've carried that with me for the rest of my life. And so when I work, you know, with other people, I understand what that feels like and what it should feel like when people are sort of working well as a team. I'm incredibly grateful for that. Tell me, have you thought about your experience in the Clinton administration during you know, these recent weeks as we're struggling with uh, the COVID-19 experience, because I, I, I'm wondering if things might look different now, if, if those efforts had turned out differently. Right. I, I had been in the administration um, in the late 90s, and so I joined after, you know, what we think of now as the efforts to reform the health system in, uh, in 93, 94. Um, they left a mark in the administration, and then there was a healthy kind of attitude to try to continue to sort of pursue the overall norms of trying to get sort of more people um, access to the care they need, but within whatever political space was available at the time. So there, there were definitely these sort of efforts to do incremental steps that, um, you know, whether it be kind of Kennedy Kasselbaum or um, you know, whether it be CHIP. So one thing that I sort of take away from that experience, and I've, I've always believed sort of on a deep gut level, is that you always get another bite at the apple. You should sort of never shy away from trying something. And if it doesn't succeed, sometimes it softens the environment for, for the next crack at it. And I think that um, that's, that's what you do. You know, history unfolds before you. You can't sort of control sort of when, when or where you come on the scene, uh, but, you know, so you do what you think is right and you see how sort of history unfolds. And, and it was so gratifying to see the political culmination of, you know, so many people's hard work and efforts and sort of collective thinking on extending health access uh, in 2010 when, when um, Obamacare passed. 
and so hopefully what it did was to uh, smooth the way for some of the things that we really need to do now as we confront this current crisis. Um, but obviously we, we weren't all the way there yet and uh, a lot of the seams in our system are um, fraying pretty, pretty badly now. So it's an opportunity for us to um, sort of reimagine what the future ought to look like given the vulnerabilities that have been exposed by the present. Um, now, talk about some of the themes in your scholarship. Um, you know, I, I, I know as someone else who spent most of my career in public service that moving into academia is really kind of an opportunity to reflect on the work that you've done and think about how you might have done it differently, but also to sort of pay it forward. I know that you've been a pretty prolific scholar. You have a book in the works. Um, talk about some of the stuff you've been working on in academia. Well, so, right, um, I do feel like, you know, I have this kind of unifying hobby horse, right, which is sort of what I had sort of articulated earlier is, you know, what is the nature of law insofar as it serves as a decision-making tool for these almost undecidable things? Again, what are, the, our, what are our community members' odds of suffering and, and flourishing? What are some of the sort of life and death kinds of decisions um, that we make um, collectively? And, and what are the tools, right, that we have in order to make those decisions with legitimacy? What are, you know, what are the kind of almost very legalistic tools of former, formal equality and minimally defined rights, right, that we are, we're, uh, we're used to in the toolbox here in the U.S.? Are those sufficient? But what other conditions might be necessary um, to make them sufficient? And how do we construct those conditions? So, so I, I sort of have been exploring that for, for a very long time. And I'm a comparativist too. So I'm sort of interested in how other countries um, in other contexts have made those kinds of what I call almost undecidable decisions. And so it was interesting. Um, I had spent so many years uh, working on HIV in China I um, had written about um, China at a crossroads back when it was struggling to reform its very massive and also dysfunctional health system. And at the time, we, we, were, we were witnessing China struggling to choose between a sort of market approach or a more centralized government approach. And right, those are sort of large ideological, normative, philosophically inflected decisions. How can law serve as a tool to make those kinds of you know, world historic choices. And um, what was fascinating to me is that China as a place without official federalism, sort of on paper, it looks like um, a unitary system. China is sort of very much employed some of the tools uh, of federalism de facto without calling it that. And I, I just found that fascinating. And I, I felt like it shed light on you know, some of the kinds of legal tools and legal concepts that we employ in the U.S. Um, in, in a new way. I also um, do work in South Africa. I teach um, a class, South African Constitutional Law, um, and I teach it as a health and human rights class. And each year, you know, as, as you know, David, um, we, we really work hard to take students to South Africa over spring break so that they can actually see it themselves and they meet with a constitutional court justice there, as well as lawyers who um, you know, uh, worked for justice in the time of apartheid. What is important to me about exposing Rucker students to health law in South Africa is that it shows a possibility that is outside the Overton window right now in the US. So in the US, the notion that the right to health could be justiciable in the courts seems wacky, right? 
we we don't even study that. I don't want the students to come out of law school and think that that's not something that law can do as a tool. And so we go somewhere, a jurisdiction that's you know still within the common law jurisdiction, and so students can read and understand the cases. Um, and, and see that law is used in just that precise way. And guess what? The world hasn't fallen apart there, right? So, so I want people to have that extra dimensionality to how they understand law as a tool. So, so that's a little bit of sort of, you know, talking about, you know, how my comparative, is, comparative understanding and then how my sort of underlying scholarly commitments connect. And I haven't talked about the book yet. You know, I'm working on a book um, and it's called a health right by any other name. And you know what I'm trying to do in the book in brief, I'll just say one sentence about it, is I want to normalize the idea of a right to health. We have denormalized it in our country. And I think the denormalization is actually doing the work of preventing us from carrying forward with some of the kinds of you know legislative and judicial progress, steps forward, advances that we um, ought to be making in order to improve um, the health of our population and the health of individual Americans. Are you doing a lot of rewriting in your brain or in fact um, during these recent weeks of the book? Because, you know, I think that the whole idea of a right to health care um, and right to health, which, you know, I think as you pointed out is recognized in other countries across the world, it may um, seem to have more of an appeal right now. I don't know. <laughs> Um, so I don't know that I'm rewriting in terms of sort of this changes what I was initially sort of saying, but I think there are certain things um, that are so much more apparent um, in, a, in a concrete way than they were. And I'll just give one example. So when I was at um, Georgetown Law, you know, one of the scholars there whom I've always admired um, was Robin West. And, you know, she was um, sort of a terrific kind of mentor and interlocutor um, to a number of us who were sort of young scholars then. But she has done this amazing writing to sort of think about affirmative rights in the U.S. system and sort of reconcile affirmative economic and social rights with our kind of contract, you know, social contractarian tradition. And she's done a lot of writing to sort of think about the Hobbesian tradition and you know, I want to, I want to actually just kind of sort of read something that she said. The reason we have government is to ensure positive protections for the citizenry. Thus, the state has an affirmative responsibility to ensure everyone's security, to protect us all against personal harm and collective attacks, and to guarantee institutions such as the national market and a stable financial system. These are the essence of the modern state, and it is the Republic of Statutes that carries out this deepest role of government. And so I think I just want to sort of, you know, extrapolate from this to what this means when we have a catastrophic health threat, right? When we have a catastrophic health threat, part of the social compact is that our government protects us. We can do more collectively to defend ourselves against something like coronavirus than each of us individually can. And when the government fails in that duty, the condition under which we consented to that, that national government was that it was going to help prevent our lives from being nasty, brutish, and short. And right now, we have a central government that is close to failing in that duty, and it is undermining its own legitimacy. And you know that it seemed like it was potentially on the horizon for a very long time. And now, in an incredibly frightening way, it is it is here before us. And I just think that 
her words and her, her way of situating the problem was so prescient. Um, and it was something that I was trying to work through in my book. And I, again, I just think it's presented to us so vividly and so frighteningly right now. And I think even in a, in a uh, pure libertarian kind of framework as, you know, where the government is supposed to protect the free market, you know, I think obviously we've seen the devastating economic impact of COVID-19. And even within that framework, um, it just seems like the whole conversation about governmental involvement in healthcare versus letting the market uh, invisible hand do its thing, that seems a little almost quaint. I just think about the, the debates, the democratic debates of barely a month and a half ago, you know, in terms of what, how are you going to pay for this? That could cost a trillion dollars. And it seems so my space in some respects to yeah. look back at those conversations now as we're, as we're seeing not only the healthcare, devastating healthcare impact, but we're seeing the devastating impact on businesses. You know, we're seeing a lot of workers, millions and millions of workers out of work. Um, so it really seems that the world has changed probably permanently in this space. So one of the alternatives to having legal decision-making is expert decision-making or, or as well as tradition. But one of the primary alternatives within contemporary U.S. society is market decision-making. And unfortunately, that market decision-making has basically colonized huge areas of our collective life, you know, crowding out other kinds of collective decision-making. And markets have their place. Market decision-making is powerful and has its place. But there are other areas of, of life where we don't allow markets to determine, right, the collective outcomes. And so I think that, you know, again, this is nothing, this is something other, other scholars have predicted, but we're sort of seeing the limits of that kind of one note, some would call even monotheistic thinking about markets, you know, sort of run, run, run to the um, end of its course, right? And, and this is not a situation where market decision-making works, but somehow we have maybe exhausted or neglected our other sort of muscles um, in terms of collective decision-making, and, and we're seeing them not be able to rise to the challenge. You know, I've, I've read those articles in USA Today and Scientific American about five significant threats to human life as we know it. And, you know, it's climate change and asteroid hitting the earth and nuclear war and, pan and you know, and, and a pandemic is always in there. As we've learned, there was a tremendous amount of discussion about the possibility of global pandemics impacting society by the experts. This is not like a new conversation. What would you say to those people who said, well, this was unexpected and this came by surprise? So I think there's been such extraordinary reporting uh, to debunk that um, this was not something that was anticipated at a micro level, right? So the fact that there was a playbook, the fact that there were these briefings, the fact that there were tabletop top exercises that were conducted in the transition from the Obama to the um, Trump administrations, um, the fact that experts have been out there writing about it, not to mention, right, the sort of more immediate 
early warning signs, you know, given by various experts, um, military intelligence, health experts, and otherwise. So, so yes, I'm going to sort of brush aside the um, kind of misleading claims that there was no forewarning of this particular pandemic. And then I just want to sort of step back and sort of think about what about the issue of pandemics more generally as civilizational challenges. We've had we've had deep knowledge of this for a very, very long time, right? Climate change has always predicted the rise of more infectious disease, right? So, so when we think about the health effects of climate change um, and the you know, civilizational challenge that climate change represents, the spread of infectious disease has always been sort of you know, part of the landscape of what was predicted and something that we would have to cope with. So is challenges to the food supply. Um, and nutritional challenges, so is um, migration and immigration. So, you know, the pandemic is maybe not so much sui generis, you know, in terms of sort of a challenge that out on its own can threaten civilization. It is part of a suite of things um, that sort of can be can be, can, be, can be considered part of the part of the um, consequences of, of climate change. Are we ready for all of these challenges of climate change? I think that it is a resounding no, right? And what we Hope comes out of this experience, you know, with all the pain and suffering, hopefully, right, it wakes us up to the fact that we need this kind of preparedness and more so for all of the, you know, sequelae of, of, of climate change that we're going to see coming, you know, after this, right, one after another. So, so I think that, you know, I, I want us not to see this as a one-off event, right? I, I hope that it builds our sort of collective resilience for all kinds of similar events, um, whether they be wildfires, or whether they be sort of food shortages. This is something that's going to require, again, right, you know, I think about that muscle memory of the best minds working together um, with collective goodwill. I, you know, we need that times a thousand to, to confront um, to confront climate change. I, I'm glad that you're a comparative scholar because I think one of the questions that I have reading the popular press is really the differential approaches of a place like China. And people are, are like, well, China's an authoritarian regime. You can't be like China. But then you also see South Korea or you see Germany and you see just sort of differing levels of responses. Do, do you want to talk sort of comparatively about our preparedness for this versus versus Germany or South Korea, or what what we probably could have done differently. So, one of the things that most people have been talking about is that we are sort of uniquely fragile um, here in the U.S. Um, in terms of sort of the way that um, our uh, economic political structures um, have evolved, and you know, I, I think that there's probably kind of alternatives that are on both tails. Of the distribution, so one tail of the distribution might be, you know, someplace like Singapore, some parts of China. Now, China, you know, as I've, in, in my view, is much more pluralistic than we give it credit for. But um, certainly, some place that has maybe a little bit more competence at the center and ability to carry out sort of one unified strategic plan. That that's kind of something that you see in some countries. And then something that you see in other countries, right, is a degree of trust. Um, so if people feel like they are being presented a very clear strategic plan, generally pe people can understand and just be on board. And you know that's something that we're seeing happen in pockets in the U.S., right? And that's what we hope will happen when the private sector kicks in, but also 
to some extent, the crime sector has not always um, served as a team player in, during this response in the U.S. And, you know, again, right, do individual Americans kind of <clears throat> jump on board and say this is an all hands on deck time? And I think we're seeing kind of different responses based on political affiliation. And that that's been um, that that division and how it's been manifested is incredibly heartbreaking. So, you know, if I try to kind of spin out, though, other scenarios in other political, legal, and economic situations, I wonder whether there's also maybe another model where there's a little bit more give in the system and more, more opportunities for resilience through bypass mechanisms. And there's a, I, I can't play out how this would, how this would function, but there's this terrific scholar in Canada. She's, she studies Brazil and her name is Mariana Moda Prado. And um, she um, has co-authored a book about bypass. You know, she's looked at countries like Brazil and, um, and I certainly sort of saw this in China too. Sometimes when there's a part of the political system that doesn't function, right? Is there some other system that you can route decisions through? I think you're seeing a little bit of that in the US when you see the Trump administration unable to function. Who do you see coming to the fore? And you see some of the governors coming to the fore, right? And, and you see sort of states coming together and trying to form interstate compacts or you know, regional buying collectives. I feel like when we confront these civilizational challenges, as I keep calling them, we need to have in mind the sort of construction of these kind of bypass systems um, that lend resilience to a system that is otherwise brittle and fragile. So I think that will be something just that I'll be interested to see in terms of, sort of examples from other countries. What's your understanding in terms of whether we have enough tests now? One of the really disheartening things about the way this unfolded is that I know many experts believe that the testing started much too late and there just weren't enough tests. But where are we now with testing and how is that sort of a reflection of our healthcare system that, that we had created? So a few days ago, I was seeing that what Germany and South Korea are doing in the neighborhood of a thousand tests per hundred thousand people in their population. The UK was doing what something like 247 tests per hundred thousand. Um, I think we might have been in the neighborhood as well pockets, right, are, are doing better. So New York is doing about, what, 1,400, 1,500 tests per 100,000 in New York State. But, but the problem is that we're not testing the population at large, right? We're testing people who are hospitalized. What we need to do, and there's been a sort of, there's a New York Times article about this before, but there's also, um, you know, uh, an interesting report that Scott Gottlieb at the uh, American Enterprise Institute has put out that gives us you know, benchmarks, four benchmarks for um, when the country can begin to open up again. And he thinks that we need 750,000 tests a week, and that would be the benchmark. So are we there yet? That's about 150,000 tests a day. New York is close, okay? But we need to make sure that those tests are going to the right people. And some of those people need to be the asymptomatic who may be um, carriers, but who we would want to make sure are notified and are able to, you know, isolate. So we need to have the tests. We need to be able to do contact tracing. This is a big gap in our system. This is one of the successes of um, sort of South Korea's experience, right? What they um, are able to do 
is identify positive, coronavirus positive individuals before they become hospitalized and sometimes even when they're asymptomatic. And as soon as you're able to locate somebody who is positive, then they're immediately able to notify all the people whom that, that individual came into contact with. Now, it used to be, and it unfortunately still is in the US, the case that, that the way you do that is a shoe leather. You ask the person where they've gone, you, um, and then you go and you try to do the detective work of finding out who was in those locations at the time the person was there. And you compile, you know, in a sense, these like manual lists of people whom you then reach out to by phone or by you know, uh, email or by in person to notify them. We would need teams and teams and teams of people in order to do that. So if you think about any state, say it's 750,000 tests a week. Say that um, roughly 10% of those tests come out positive. That means every week you need to do that process for 75,000 people. How many teams of contact tracers would you need to have in order to accomplish that? Um, and could they do it in time since you know that there's you know, quite a long period, um, at least a week, um, where people might be asymptomatic before they develop symptoms? So, so you, know, you need to sort of let these folks know right away so that they can isolate in that, in that time period. South Korea has been accomplishing that through what they call kind of instantaneous contact, contact tracing. They have a lot of boots on the ground, right, to do the shoe leather contact tracing, but they also um, use cell phone data um, and credit card data. And then when someone finds out that they are positive, that that person's cell phone immediately they have an app that sends out a notification to maybe all the people who have who who have cell phones who have been within range a certain range of the positive person's cell phone right and so then you get um, instantaneous notification of people who know that they might have been exposed and know to maybe go get tested and so that they can be isolated so if you think about this this is like a huge lift in terms of setting up the infrastructure to be able to do this and we're nowhere close. We've cut the personnel over the course of the Trump administration, cut funding for the personnel who would do the contact tracing. We're not hiring people now and training them to do it. So again, once again, right, all this time we could have been preparing for tests. Right now, as we're trying to prepare for tests, we should be preparing for contact tracers. And we're not doing that. So at every step of the process, we are falling behind and failing to prepare. Um, let, let's, I know that you also do a lot of work with the Food and Drug Administration and the regulatory process. And I know that obviously the FDA is implicated significantly in terms of trying to help us um, ensure an effective response um, to this crisis. So, for instance, um, the FDA is responsible for regulating the supply of ventilators, right? Mm -hmm. And there's also new drugs. So there's always the talk about like some new magic drug there. And why is the FDA, pro a lot of people are like, why does the FDA process have to be so bureaucratic? Talk a little bit about the FDA regulatory role in COVID-19. So the FDA regulates the um, safety, efficacy, and honest labeling and advertising of drugs, devices, food, and a ventilator, as well as a mask as well as a drug right all of these are items that fall within the category of the fda's jurisdiction the nasal swab that you use in order to get collect the sample to test is a medical device right the the reason why we have the fda is so that when 
a manufacturer makes a claim out there that if you use this product, you can prevent disease or you can test accurately for whether the person has the disease or you can protect yourself um, to a certain degree from being, being um, infected by you know, contact with the person who has the disease or use of this product will cure or treat the disease. Th those kinds of claims need to uh, be claims that the American people can trust. And you know, I think that the FDA is an incredible achievement in terms of you know, the ability to sort of protect, protect the American people um, in those dimensions, but it is fragile, right? And you're um, beginning to see it be assaulted um, in a number of ways that make me worry for, for uh, whether it can continue to serve that function in the future. Um, and I think a lot of insiders are worried about that as well. Uh, and it does not help to have the president on TV making the exact kinds of claims about a type of therapeutic, right, that we are trying to prevent manufacturers from being able to make without data. That's been really obviously the source of a lot of a lot of discussion over recent weeks. Um, another thing that I guess for me that's very personally unsettling as a law school dean, as someone who works in the law school, is really sort of the public nature of the debate as to as to our federal structure and as to where responsibility lies for addressing these issues. And you know, as as sort of a central discussion in the history of this country, it would seem that we would have had those questions worked out now. But, you know, so often it looks like at the federal level, they're trying to push the responsibility for what is an international global crisis back to the states. And, you know, I think in the New York metropolitan area, we've seen really just a tremendous mobilization of resources, of medical resources, of, of healthcare resources, of testing. In you know really the ep what is now the epicenter and what is really you know one of the most densely concentrated areas of, of of the world of the United States. But I read somebody sent me an article yesterday about Mississippi, how Mississippi now has the highest infection rate, and you see now in Florida that the rates are are, are escalating rapidly, and they have such a significant um, elderly population down there, and. It, I think it's unsettling to many people that the states have been given so much authority in terms of the degree of social distancing that goes on. And right now it looks like you're starting to see some of the perhaps consequences of that. And, you know, to have sort of almost like a public debate about whether the federal government has a responsibility for testing at all is really, really, I guess, for me personally unsettling. I don't know if you have any expertise to bear on that issue. Yeah, I saw someone say the other day that um, they're getting a strong Articles of Confederation vibe here in terms of sort of what's going on. So if you think about why the Constitution was written and why um, the United States of America um, was born. One of the reasons was because there were these sort of coordination and collective action problems among states under the Articles of the Confederation, right? So to think of one of the core federal powers in the U.S. Constitution, which is to regulate interstate commerce, right? It was because you saw among the several states um, under the Articles of Confederation competing with one another in terms of sort of, you know, their economic relationships with foreign countries. You see that exact same dynamic now when you see the various states being forced to bid against one another in order to purchase 
protective equipment for their healthcare workers and you know thereby bidding the price of you know uh, masks and and um, ventilators you know much higher than they they otherwise would have to pay if the central government were playing or the federal government were playing a coordinating role and so you know again this is sort of part of the story of you know the Trump administration failing on its half of the social compact we're sort of reverting to something that was kind of the foundational condition of the United States, the concept of the United States. Um, how do we know that we're out of it? I mean, are, are, are there, from a um, public health standpoint, are there necessary steps that we need to be taking as a nation to prepare to come out of it? What, what are the metrics that determine that we can start to get back to life as normal and what public health steps need to be taken to ensure that there's not a, a reintroduction of the virus later on. Right. So, you know, Scott Gottlieb, who was um, the commissioner of the um, FDA prior to the current commissioner, Stephen Hahn, he has issued this report that um, basically provides a benchmark for when we might be able to start lifting restrictions. Some of them I've shared, right, the um, at least 750,000 um, tests per week. Right, that, that is a minimum threshold for beginning to sort of look at whether people can open up. The, the ability to conduct contact tracing, which we talked about, right? Effective contact tracing on um, you know, positive individuals who are found through that testing process, that's another precondition for being able to open up. Um, a third precondition for being able to open up is that you're seeing um, case finding, uh, I think it was fall um, consistently for two weeks. Um, a fourth precondition is that your hospitals need to be able to serve everyone who um, needs hospitalization without resorting to crisis standards of care. So, so he's you know listed out sort of a bunch of and they're they're minimal preconditions for um, being able to consider uh, lifting some of the um, most onerous um, stay-at-home orders. Now, what what underlies these recommendations? You know, what underlies these recommendations is that people feel confident that there's not so much unknown risk of death out there that they cannot go about their business. Right now, we don't have a vaccine, right, or a therapeutic that could provide people that kind of confidence. So this is sort of talking about in the near term. Sort of in the long term, what we want to see is well, maybe people know that they may be at risk for contracting coronavirus, just as they may be at risk for contracting any number of viral diseases, right? But they also feel confident that they could be cared for um, should they get sick in a way that they won't lose their lives. And so right now we don't have that and we don't have that confidence. So the only thing that we can do right now is, is um, take personal steps to avoid coming into contact with anyone who might transmit this incredibly contagious disease to us. So how do we begin to change those conditions and sort of knowing um, that enough people are getting tested so that the people that are coming into contact with are not carriers of the virus? Um, that, is, that is a big, you know, a, a big leap, a big condition that we need to be able to achieve before, before we can move to um, the next phase. Do you think we're adequately prepared to do that? You know, I think, um, unless we're able to fix the testing situation, but also, you know, what I want to emphasize is the contact tracing capability, which I see no one at the federal level focusing on, then I'm really worried that we can't. What I'm hearing you say is that this is not going to be like flipping a light switch. This will be sort of a gradual return to normal. Yeah, 
you know, I've heard experts say, look, we're looking at an 80% economy until we get a, um, a vaccine. So that, that means to it, so just large gatherings, large conferences, um, people crowded in stadiums, right? That, that is not going to come back um, until, again, we have something that provides a greater level of confidence in the um, infrastructure that we have in place now. Um, you know, everyone sort of stay safe. And, uh, you know, I hope that, um, you know, we all come out of this with a greater, a greater visceral understanding that we're all in this together and, you know, the kinds of challenges that we face, um, you know, some of which are, 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 are going to, this is not going to be the last, that uh, we need the kind of, of collective energy that, um, that we're practicing now. But in terms of sort of, you know, the right to health care, um, this has to be a game changer, right? This has to completely change that conversation when we come out of it or even now. I think people, um, you know, we're, and even the way of framing the debate as sort of a tension between market-based solutions and the government, it seems like that is a little bit antiquated now that we've spent $2 trillion <laughs> on um, a relief package, which is basically the government jumping in to do stuff after the fact. And yeah. I think that many people are asking the question in many areas, what, what could have, how we could have saved that money if we had spent some of that money beforehand. And that's just not on the healthcare system. I think, you know, I think we're seeing different systems, the public school system, the public university system that have come under increased amount of stress as a result of this. Um, so what do you think about the national right of healthcare? What we see right now is this resurgence of our intuitive understanding that we do have a right that it's basic to our social compact. Now, what makes me hopeful is that you see such clear indications across broad swaths of society um, that people just feel like this is basic, right? And and healthcare always radicalizes everybody. But when when your health is under threat, right, people sort of come together and just feel like this just makes intuitive sense. What makes me worry, right? The signs that make me worry are that even under these conditions, the Trump administration refused to open up the Obamacare exchanges for a special enrollment period so that people could sign up for health insurance. All they were willing to do was take a slush fund of $100 billion and say, oh, well, we'll backfill the hospitals for giving you uncompensated care, right? That is the opposite of what we want. What we want is people to feel confident that they can go and get care and it will get paid for and healthcare across a broad spectrum of conditions that they might confront. You don't know when you go to the hospital, whether you have bacterial pneumonia or whether you have coronavirus. Why would we want to deter someone by saying, we're only going to pay for coronavirus. So if you go to the hospital now and try to seek care and it turns out that you have bacterial pneumonia or you had asthma, you know, sorry, you're out of luck. Our slush fund doesn't pay for that, right? The reflex of the Trump administration to deny people the opportunity to sign up for an existing healthcare um, health insurance product that the insurers themselves in their trade association have said they would support the opportunity for people to be able to sign up now is such a reflection of this clinging to the retrograde notion um, that we should never give people these guarantees. Thank you very much, uh, Christina. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to have a cup of coffee and a drink again soon. Cheers. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, David. The Power of 
Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal, small campus experience. Learn more about Rutgers Law by visiting law.rutgers.edu.